Hello, my name is Larry Schantz, and I should begin by letting you know that for 43 years I was the lead pastor of this church until I retired four years ago. But the good thing is they still let me come back and speak once in a while. And so today is one of those days. And I want to begin with a story. It's a very interesting story that was written by a fellow who had a very bad day. And as a result of that, he was requesting from his employer a leave of absence. Listen to his story. When I got home after a ferocious thunderstorm, I discovered that the lightning had struck the chimney of our three-story farmhouse. So the next day, being Saturday, I decided to repair the damaged chimney. So I rigged up a beam with a pulley and a whip at the top of the chimney and hoisted a couple of barrels full of bricks to the top. When I got through replacing the entire top of the chimney, there was the damaged bricks left over. So I hoisted the barrel back up again, secured the line at the bottom, went up on the roof and filled the barrel with the damaged bricks. Then I went down to the ground and I cast off the line. But unfortunately, I failed to realize that the barrel of bricks at the top of the roof was now heavier than I was. And before I knew what was happening, the barrel of bricks started coming down fast and literally jerked me off the ground. I was so much caught off by, by surprise that I just hung on for dear life, which ended up being a very bad mistake. Because halfway on my way up, I met the barrel of bricks coming down fast, and I received a severe blow to my shoulder. I then continued on to the top of the roof, banging my head against the beam and getting my fingers jammed in the pulley. But that wasn't the end of my problems. When the barrel hit the ground, its bottom burst open, allowing all the bricks to spill out, now making me heavier than the barrel. So guess what happened? I started coming down fast at high speed. Halfway down, I again met the barrel coming up and received severe lacerations to my shins. And then I hit the ground hard and landed on the bricks, getting numerous painful cuts from their sharp edges. At this point, I must have lost my presence of mind because I let go of the rope, which caused the barrel to come back down again, striking me with a heavy blow on the head, causing a concussion. I'm now in the hospital on medical leave for an extended period of time, and I'm not sure when I'll be back to work. <laughs> oh, yes, what a day that guy had. I don't know where you're at today, but some of you may be facing trials. And whenever we face trials, we have an opportunity to respond. And those trials will either come between us and God, or they, our God will, be, will end up being between the trials and us. And it makes all the difference where it is. James writes this in James chapter 1. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now, that's a different perspective. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. And if you need wisdom... You can just ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Now that's a different way of looking at troubles. And I would submit to you 
that the greatest reason God has for taking us through the trials of life is to bring us to the firm conclusion that we can't do life on our own. We need to have God there with us. Johnny Erickson discovered that in a very real way. When she was 16 years of age, she dived into some shallow water and snapped her spinal cord and became a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. She's now 73 years of age. I just heard her the other day on Focus on the Family. And whenever I know Johnny Erickson is speaking, I listen because she has such profound things to say because she's been through it. One of the first books that she wrote after her accident was a book called A Step Further. It has profoundly impacted my life and given me a perspective that has made it so helpful for me when I face trials. In that book, Johnny Erickson basically says, yes, it sucks to be in a wheelchair. Yes, it sucks not to be able to use my limbs. But I can actually thank God because he's taught me lessons that I would have never learned without the accident. He taught me lessons about perseverance. He taught me lessons about the reality of heaven. He taught me lessons about how to face the trials of life and be a victor through the midst of them. And she's still writing today. She's written several books. The most recent book that she wrote is the one on the hymns of the faith and how they are such a comfort to her in the midst of her challenges of life. Paul goes on to talk about different levels of trials. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, listen to what he says. He says, we're pressed on every side by troubles but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but we're never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Here we see that Paul's talking about four different levels of trials and tests that emerge as we go through life. The first level of uh, trials that he talks about is found in verse 8, where he says, we're pressed on every side by troubles. And then he goes on to say, even further, we're perplexed. And then in verse 9, he goes even deeper and he says, we're being hunted down. And finally, he says, we get knocked down, which is the most intense form of the four trials that he talks about. Let's just look at them briefly. The first level of testing is what I call a regular part of life. <laughs> Verse 8 says, we're pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. And the term that Paul uses here for troubles is the Greek word klipsos. This word suggests the regular pressures of everyday living that come from people, the pressure that comes from personality conflicts, the pressure that comes from time demands, from financial pressures, from unexpected delays, from health concerns. All of these things combined can cause us to be pressed on every side. And no life is free from those kinds of pressures. I, dare I say that everyone who hears me today is facing some kind of pressures or troubles but we don't have to be crushed by them. And then Paul goes on to say in verse eight, another level of pressure. He says, we're perplexed, but not driven to despair. 
And now we're moving into a more intense experience. The Greek word that Paul uses here literally means without a way. And this word suggests confusion, not knowing where to go or who to turn to or who to turn to. It means to be without an understanding of how to deal with the situation. This word would include unfair treatment from unfair people. And sometimes we just have difficulty of making sense of it. Why is this happening? Maybe you're involved in a business that seems to be going belly up as a result of COVID restrictions. Or maybe you're dealing with a very difficult boss and you're just trying to figure out, how do I deal with this? Uh, nothing I do seems to please them. You're perplexed. But even though you're perplexed, we don't have to despair. Now it gets even more intense because in verse 9, he goes to the next level of test, which is even more extreme. He says, we're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. This word could also be translated persecuted. And this word means to run after, to pursue. And there's a, an aggressive action in this word. And that's where some of you may find yourself today. You, you see, it seems that you're being hunted down continually. And it's not just some mild irritation that comes and goes, but, but this is something that doesn't go away. And you've been praying about it for a long time. But it's continuing to happen and it's beginning to eat at you. And it may be even starting to form a little ulcer in the lining of your stomach. It's beginning to take a toll because it's an extreme test. This could be problems with a former spouse. It could be child custody issues. I know of a person who has spent over $100,000 after he, they split, split up and, and dealing with the kids and the different values and it just goes on and on. And it's been this way for 10 years and there's no end in sight. I have another close acquaintance who, who's an accountant and he bought into an accounting firm. And at first everything seemed good but then he found out that his partner was cheating on things and being deceptive. And so he decided that for integrity reasons, he had to leave the partnership. But that was 10 years ago. And the court battles are still going on and the costs are going up. And it's gotten so bad that he can't sleep at night. And recently he was hospitalized because of high anxiety and blood pressure. It's an extreme test that's running him down. But Paul says we're not abandoned by God. And then there's a fourth level of testing, which I call the ultimate test. It's the maximum pressure. Young people would call it the mega test. This is the ultimate level of testing where we're knocked down, that we don't have to be destroyed. In this, there's a loss of something very real and dear to you. It can be the loss of a mate through divorce. It can be the loss of a close friend through death, the loss of a parent. Or maybe it could be financial collapse. It could be the loss of your home through a fire. Or even the loss of your ultimate dream. Those of you who follow the life of Corey Tim Boom know that in World War II, she lost everything. She lost her home. She lost her family. She ended up in prison. And yet Corey made a decision in the midst of that. She made a decision that no matter what, I will follow God. 
And I will allow these circumstances not to destroy me, but to bring me closer to God. And she writes about that. But when these kinds of things happen, often our human response is, I can't believe that happened. I, I can't believe my husband left me. I can't believe the doctor says I have cancer. Ultimate tests seem to be met with that kind of reaction. Sometimes we even go through denial, often followed by the human reasoning, how can a good God allow this to happen to me? How can God be in control of everything? And I followed him, and yet this is happening to me. We're knocked down, but we don't have to be destroyed. Today, I want us to look at the life of Abraham as we see the challenges that he faces with the trials of his life. In Genesis 22, we have the story. And the reason that Abraham is chosen as God's example of extreme faith is because neither shock nor disillusionment characterize his response in the midst of his greatest challenge in life. In Genesis 22, God presents to Abraham the ultimate test, or we could call it the ultimate trial. In verse 1, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. See that word God? It's a Hebrew word, Elohim. It means the supreme God, the creator, the one who is in charge of life, the one and only. God comes to Abraham as he had years ago. Remember, this was the same God that told Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, his homeland, and to follow him to a land where he doesn't know where he's going, but to believe in him. Can you imagine Sarah, Abraham's wife, when Abraham said, guess what, Sarah, we're leaving Ur of the Chaldees. Well, where are we going? I don't know. Well, why are we leaving? I don't know. Well, how are we going to get there? I don't know. But God's going to lead us. And that's what they did. This is the same God who said to Abram, I am going to make a covenant with you and you are going to have a supernatural child. And through this child, there will be many offspring. And out of that offspring will come one who will bless all the people of the world. That's in Genesis chapter 12. And then God enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham, a formal covenant in Genesis 15. You can read about it, or you can come next week when my wife speaks about it. And you'll understand a lot better. I'm coming next week. And then God caused Abraham and Sarah, even in their old age, he was over 100 years of age, to supernaturally conceive and give birth to this child of the covenant, the one through whom uh, would come many offspring, as many as the sands of the sea. And through that offspring would come one who would bless the whole world. But he comes to Abraham and he says, Abram, in verse 2, I want you to take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. I love the emphasis on this. This is the, the son of the covenant. This is the son of promise. This is the one through whom I said all the nations of the world will be blessed. And I want you to go to the land of Moriah. 
And I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the mountain, on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Notice in verse one, it says, God tested Abram. That is in the intense form in the Hebrew language. This is an extreme test like nothing else in Genesis. This is the fourth level of testing that we talked about from Second Corinthians chapter 4. This is the mega test. And perhaps that's where some of you are today. Some of you right now are at that level of testing. And you seem to have more questions than you have answers. But don't think for a moment that God doesn't know what's going on. Don't think for a moment that anything surprises God. He can name every idol of our lives, every precious possession, every precious relationship. And he knows the things that we hold tightest. But God touched the apple of Abram's eye when he said, I want you to take your son, your beloved son, the son of the covenant. Yes, Isaac. And what was he supposed to do? He's to go to the land of Moriah and offer his beloved son as a burnt offering. You got to be kidding me. The word that's used in the Hebrew is the word ola. When you sacrifice in those days, you could sacrifice an offering as you did at Passover. You would sacrifice a lamb on the altar, but then you could take the bulk of the meat and you could eat it in the Passover feast. You would give some to the priest, of course. But this word, Ola, means the sacrifice is totally consumed by fire. I want you to take your beloved son, and I want you to put him on an altar, and I want you to consume his entire body by fire. That's what I expect of you, Abram. And then he says in the end of verse 2, on one of the mountains, which I will show you, <laughs> that must have reminded Abraham of the time that God said, I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees. Yeah, where am I going to go? Don't worry about it, Abraham. I'm going to show you. Same kind of deal here. Abraham, trust me. I know what I'm about. I want you to go to the land of Moriah, and I will show you the mountain on which I want you to offer your son. And as you walk with me, I'll show you the way. And Abraham's been doing that for years. By the way, the longer you do this, the better you get at it the more sensitive you become. And in the words of Corey Timboom, you learn to hold those things that are precious loosely because otherwise it hurts too much when God has to pry your fingers from them. That's such an important lesson in life. Now look carefully at Abram's response to this ultimate test. It's absolutely remarkable. Four things characterize his response. First of all, we see that Abram's response was immediate. Look at verse 3. It says, sometime later, pardon me, it says the very next morning, Abram got up early. I love that. It suggests he got up even before the sun rose up. And he's all prepared to go on this journey. He saddled up the donkey. He got two servants going with him, along with his son Isaac. And he even chopped the wood for the fire for a burnt offering. And he set out for the place that God had told them about early the next morning. You know, Abraham could have said, God, are you, what are you talking about? This is the son of, of the covenant. You promised that through him and through his seed would come one who would bless all the nations of the world. What are you doing? 
This must be some mistake. No. Abram's walked with God long enough to know that he can trust God. And so his response was immediate. Second, we see that his response was characterized by an incredible confidence. Watch this carefully or you'll miss it. Look at verse 4. It says in verse 4, On the third day of the journey, Abram looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said, stay there with the donkey, he told the servants. And the boy and I, the boy Isaac and I will travel a little further. Notice what it says at the end of verse 5. We will worship there. Isn't that an incredible statement? Abraham sees this act that he's doing. His willingness to offer the son of the covenant, his beloved son Isaac, is an ola, a fire that's going to be consumed on the altar. It's an act of worship. But then he says, we will worship and we, plural, that's the way it reads in the Hebrew. We will come right back. Isn't that amazing? God says, go and offer your son as a burnt offering. What does Abraham do? He splits the wood. He gets the torch ready. He gets the servants. They go on this three-way journey. He says to the servants, I am my son. We'll be right back. How can he say that? He is saying that because he has confidence in God's miraculous ability to give a solution to this dilemma. He didn't know what the solution would be or how it would work out, but he trusted God. He knew that in the end, God would be glorified. Why? Because God has already promised that Isaac would be the son of the covenant. If Isaac is the secret of this nation, then, uh, you know, how's God going to work it out? Well, God's going to do it. This isn't some kind of mistake. Abraham said that because he had learned that in life. I love what it says in Romans 8, 28. It says, but in the end, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Why? So that we could be conformed to the image of Christ. Abraham believed that. He believed that somehow God would work it out in ways that were beyond his understanding. He had confidence in God. Third, we see that Abraham's response was based on the character of God. Look at, oh, pardon me, let me back up. I missed Hebrews 11. Why could Abraham say that? Why does he have confidence? The writer to Hebrews give us a, gives us a glimpse. In verse 17, it says, It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promise, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. What did Abraham reason? He reasoned that if Isaac died, he served a God who was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. That gives us a glimpse into what Abraham's faith was all about. He believed that God would work it out. 
Third, we see that Abram's uh, response was based on the very character of God. Look at verse 6. So Abram placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked along together. Have you seen any pictures of this in a child's Bible storybook? Or if you've been in Sunday school in primary, you'll... I still remember seeing a picture on the flannel graph that dates me of Isaac, an eight-year-old boy, walking with his dad obediently as they were going up the mount for the sacrifice. But as you read this passage carefully, that's not the picture we get. By the time that this was happening, Isaac must have been a full-grown young adult. Because why? He is carrying the fire himself. He is able to carry enough wood to feel the offering that Abram's about to uh, have. You know, if I carried enough wood for uh, a sacrifice, that would probably be about a four log limit for me. (laughs) We were in Letchworth Park uh, last week and they were selling wood by the roadside for your fireplace and it said $4 for all the wood that you can carry. (laughs) I kind of wished I had my six foot seven uh, son-in-law with me, Um, but anyway, I didn't. But Isaac was big enough to carry the wood, which suggests that he was old enough to make a decision that he would go along with his father in the calling that God had given them. But as they're walking, Isaac has a question. Notice the question. Isaac, verse seven, turned to his father, Abram, and said, Father, yes, my son, Abram replied, We have the fire and the wood, the boy said. But where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abram responded. And they both walked along together. What a neat interaction you have here between a father and son. I love his response. It's absolutely fantastic. Literally, he says, we don't have to worry about that, Isaac. God's called us to do this. And if God's called us to do this, God is going to provide. We're going to see that come up again in the later verses of this chapter. God will provide. He's under, he has it all under control. Abraham can't see it at the moment. Isaac can't see it. And when it says God will provide, literally in the Hebrew, it says God sees the situation. He has it all under control. Abram's response was based on the character of God. My friends, when your children are faced with calamity, they really listen to what you say and they watch how you respond. Guard your words. Be wise. They long to have perspective. They long to see your faith in action. You may not have answers at that point, but you can say to them, God's in control. He'll take care of us. I remember on the farm when we were facing drought of our crops and my dad would have our family get together and we would pray for rain. And we would pray for rain. And sometimes the drought lasted longer. But you know what? Every time God came through. And after the rain came through, my dad always got us together and we prayed and we thanked God for the rain that he sent so that we would have crops that year. I learned a lot about faith by watching my dad. 
The next thing that we see is that Abraham's response was not half-hearted, but rather it was wholehearted. Look at the path of Abraham. He gets up early in the morning. He, he has the wood all cut. He has the servants go with him. He, he's got the torch in the night. He left nothing behind. There would be no escape. There, there would be no ace in the hole. No reason to say, oh God, I forgot something. We, we can't go through with it. I have to go back and get it. No. He was thorough. His hands were loose on his son Isaac. And he was even ready to release him, no matter how painful it may be. And whatever it took, he saw Isaac through the lens of God, not through his own eyes. And friends, I suggest that's the way to really love your children. Ultimately, we are not there to control them. We guide them, but they ultimately belong to God. And look at in verse 9. When they arrive at the place where God had told them to go, notice, the place where God had told them to go. I emphasize that because we're going to come back to that. Abram built an altar, arranged the wood on it, tied his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and Abraham picked up the knife and was about to kill his son as a sacrifice. You can just see Abraham with the knife raised, ready to bring it down. And at the very moment that he was ready to bring it down, the angel of the Lord calls out to him from heaven, Abram, Abram. Yes, Abram replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. What a remarkable day that must have been for Abram. He was drenched in the joy of those words. He drops his knife. He helps his son Isaac off the altar. The test was over, but God wasn't through. Look at his amazing provision in verse 13. Then Abram looked up and saw a ram caught by his horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abram named the place Yahweh Yireh, or Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And then it says this, to this day, People still use that term, name as a proverb, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God will provide. And there was a ram there. And notice it says, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And now I want to tell you the rest of the story. Some of you remember Paul Harvey a number of years ago. He used to be on the radio and he would tell a story and then he would say, and now for the rest of the story. And he would bring a conclusion to his original story. Well, I want to conclude with, <coughs> pardon me, the rest of the story. In 1 Chronicles 21, we read that an angel of the Lord, God, came to instruct David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ariah, the Jebusite. So Abram went, uh, David went up to what the Lord, to do what the Lord had commanded him to do through God. And it says, David built an altar there to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And when David prayed, the Lord answered by sending fire from heaven to burn up the offering on the altar. So notice, God leads Abraham to this exact place to buy this threshing floor, to, to build an altar, 
to make a sacrifice. But then, in 1 Chronicles 21, we read, um, pardon me, 2 Chronicles 3, we read, so Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Where does he build it? On Mount Moriah. Where did we hear about Mount Moriah before? That's exactly the place that Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, the place that God led him to. This is the very place that God led David to build the altar, and now his son Solomon is building a temple on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David, his father. The temple was built on the threshing floor of Uriah, the Jebusite, the very site that David had selected. But David didn't select it. God had selected it. So that's where the temple, the great temple of Jerusalem was built. What's the rest of the story? You know, it's interesting that we read in 1 Peter that God had a plan before the creation of the world, a plan of, to redeem mankind. Fast forward to the New Testament. John 19, 16, Pilate turned Jesus over to be crucified. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to a place called the place of the skull in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. You see the plan, the rest of the story? The place that God had led Abraham to, the mountain that was called the Lord will provide, the very place where the temple was built by Solomon, the very place that Jesus died on the cross, the Lord provided. And it was part of his eternal plan for the creation of the universe that's now been revealed to us. I don't know about you, but that just causes shivers to go up and down my spine when I think of God's incredible plan and how it was mirrored by Abraham 1,400 years earlier. I love what Paul says about this in Romans 5, verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God has shown his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us when we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. And so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Isn't that a great story? What a hope that we have. You know, I don't know what trials you're facing now. All of us have trials of various kinds. And we have a choice. We can either let those trials come between us and God, or we can allow those trials to push us closer to God. That's a conscious decision that we make. 
no matter what your trial, God will provide. I want to close with this benediction. It comes from the words of Andrew, Andrew Crouch, a hymn that he wrote a number of years ago. He said, I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions for tomorrow. There's been times I didn't know right from wrong. But in every situation, God has given me blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. His last verse goes like this. I thank God for the mountains and I thank him for the valleys and I thank him for the storms he's brought me through. For if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. I'd never know what faith in my God could do. Through it all, through it all. I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word.